It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Friday, June 12, 2009. And my son is coming back home for the first time since joining the Navy. First time he's had leave. <laughs> I might be having to go pick him up. He's having trouble getting home. But I gotta tell you, the wife and I are extremely excited. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, the goal of which is to get you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God and spirituality and religion to God's Word, the Bible. Why? Because the Word, the word of God is true, and believe me, deception takes on multiple forms. Now, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is a little bit different. Normally, I read some news stories and and read some listener email and then do a little bit of teaching and then we do a sermon review. All of that, the, our normal format is thrown out the window today. Today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is a little bit different. And the reason why it's a little bit different is because I'd like you to come and think along with me. Consider today's edition to be kind of almost like a Twilight Zone journey. You and I are going to go on a journey. We're going to listen to some stuff, and I'm going to react to it, and I'm going to solicit your feedback. And the reason I'm doing it this way is because I'm not sure what conclusions to draw. Uh, obviously, the conclusions I need to draw are that Scripture is true and that anybody who contradicts the Word of God is not telling me the truth. However, we live in weird days. Now, I'm not a, I'm not taking away what I just said. We live in weird days. And as I research and dumpster dive for Jesus, if you would, for this program, there is one particular thread, one particular branch of research, which... I always kind of wander down a little bit and then come back and say, that's just crazy talk. <laughs> the reason I say that is because it's it's crazy talk. It's the kind of stuff that's Twilight Zone. It's the kind of stuff that makes you go, this is the kind of thing I, I, I look at when I'm at the supermarket checkout stand and you see those bizarre tabloid newspapers and, you know, they, they talk about, you know, giants roaming the earth and, you know, alien child being born to Elvis Presley, things like that, Okay. There is there is a a new age teacher out there by the name of Benjamin Krem. And Benjamin Krem apparently channels this guy, this thing, this spiritual enlightened thing called Maitreya. Now, up until recently, in fact, even today I'm still not even sure what to make of this guy. I think for the most part he's a nut job. He's a crackpot. This can't possibly be true. Can it? And see, that's the thing. I, I come back to the can it part of it. And the reason why we're going to wander down this road 
is because it's a little bit fun in the form of you know of, of, of eschatological speculation. That's what it could be called at best. What I it's just so you know, my point of view is I don't believe that Scripture teaches a pre-trib rapture. I don't believe in any such thing. I'm more in line with what the amillennialists teach. If you really want to know my eschatology. However, that being said, I absolutely do believe that the scripture makes it clear that in the last days that there will be a great apostasy or rebellion in the Christian church against the word of God and against the church itself and against Christ, that there will be uh, eventually a man of lawlessness whom people, you know, pre-trib guys like to call the Antichrist. I, I use the term uh, that Paul uses for him in uh, Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, and that things are going to generally go crazy and haywire right before the end. And um, so th th that's pretty much my eschatology in a in a nutshell, if you would. And so every now and then, you just you you as I'm researching, I come up against things that just make me go, where do I categorize this? How do I classify this information is this information that i should take seriously or is this information that i should throw into the waste bin of the bazaar now i now i understand what i'm saying here is that i i, I in in all reality i don't open up the newspaper and go oh looks like we're closer today because you know some political leader in one of the muslim nations made a threat against israel i I, I'm not interested in that at all. Um, I look at this, though, and I go, hmm. Now, throw into the mix um, what you're going to be hearing regarding this Maitreya guy and the message that he's supposedly bringing or going to bring to the world. Um, one of the things I look for, okay, when I'm researching are patterns. I look for patterns and puzzle pieces that kind of fit together. And most of the time when you're putting puzzle pieces together, they don't fit. And I'm trying to figure out if what I'm hearing regarding the message of this Maitreya guy actually fits with stuff that I'm hearing from the emergent folks. Now, I know that's a bizarre stretch. And some of you might even say, oh, that's just absolutely unreasonable of you. That How how scandalous, how, how irresponsible of you to say such things. Now, I'm going to put the evidence out there. And I just, again, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is come think along with me. That's really the idea behind it. Come and let's think along together on this. And See if any of if, if any of you have other bits of information that fit into this bigger puzzle. And do I believe we're living in the last days? Well, I believe the last days began when Christ ascended into heaven. Could Christ return tomorrow? Absolutely. Are are we living in the final final days of days? Couldn't tell you. I don't know. <laughs> I just don't. It. I'll be frank. I could care less. You know, God's going to do what God's going to do when God's going to do it. And so that being said, though, this just makes me go, hmm, <laughs> what do I make of this? Now, this audio that you're going to hear to kind of kick things off is a guy by the name of Benjamin Krem. He claims to channel something called Maitreya. And this is him giving a speech at a conference in Osaka, Japan, uh, back in 2004. So this is about five years old. 
And I want you to listen to what he says, this Maitreya thing, cat character, whoever, I don't know what this is, what he's going to do and what he stands for. Now, as I hear something like this, I go, hmm, that sounds similar to what I understand the Bible teaches regarding the man of lawlessness. Is Benjamin Krem a nut job? Somebody that I should just sweep into the ash heap and just say, yeah, forget it. This guy's completely bonkers. Nothing he says is legit. He's been saying stuff like this for years. It's never come about. Nothing's ever going to come of it. Just ignore Benjamin Krem. Listen carefully, though, and see what you think. When Maitreya begins his open manifestation through television and so on, When enough people are responding to his ideas and teachings, there will be then what we call the Day of Declaration, in which he will acknowledge who he is and demonstrate that to the world. Okay, so right off the bat, he's saying this Maitreya guy, when enough people respond to his teachings, I am assuming positively, uh, that then he will reveal himself to the world in this, I guess, what's some, something he's going to call the coming day of declaration. He's going to declare himself to the world. Well, what? who is this guy? What's he going to declare? Maitreya will appear on the television sets of everybody in the world. If you do not have a television set, then beg, borrow, or steal one. On the day of declaration, you would not want to be without your television. Because there you will see, or now a familiar face, that of Maitreya throughout the world. Okay, stop for a second here. Did, <clears throat> According to Benjamin Krem, uh, on the day of declaration, the day when this Maitreya character shows up, we will then see something that someone who is already a familiar face. Okay. Linked together by satellites which are in place for this event, so that for the first time in history, the world teacher can present himself openly at the same time to the whole of humanity. The who? The what? The world teacher? The world teacher, Maitreya? Please tell me this guy has just smoked way too much weed and and dropped too much LSD in the 60s, and that's explaining this crazy talk here. Please tell me there is nothing to this. An extraordinary, what we would call a miracle, will take place. We will see Maitreya's face, but he will not actually speak. But Maitreya's thoughts, ideas will come into our minds and each of us will hear him inwardly in our own language, whatever it happens to be. So you will hear him in Japanese, the French and French, the Russians and Russian, the Dutch and Dutch, the Flemish and Flemish, and so on. Whatever is your mother language, you will hear it in your mind as if Maitreya was speaking directly to you. Whatever you're doing, If you're out fishing or under the car or whatever you're doing, if you're not watching television, you will still hear the voice, the thoughts, the ideas of Maitreya inwardly. You can turn it off. You can think something else. It's up to you. 
But if you want to know what the world teacher is saying to humanity, I advise you to listen. This will happen to everybody above the age of 14. Maitreya will give a short history of the long, long history of the world. Show the height from which humanity has fallen into this materialism of today. He will introduce the fact of his group, the spiritual hierarchy of masters. He will show you the future, outline some of the extraordinary scientific marvels which will open up new life for humanity. And he will make his appeal for justice, for sharing as the only way to justice and so to peace. Okay, so his message is going to be one of sharing as and and world peace, as the uh, 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 man. Okay, sharing. Hmm, what does this sound like? I know what it sounds like. It sounds like global communism. We're going to spread poverty around equally throughout the world. Oh man, the world. While this is taking place, his energy, the energy of love. A tremendous potency will flow out through all the people of the world. In the hearts of all humanity, this will be felt and they will respond intuitively to this energy. He has said it will be as if I embrace the whole world. People will feel it even physically. This will create an intuitive, heartfelt response to the message. And on the physical plane, there will be hundreds of thousands of spontaneous miracle healings, cures throughout the world. All right, stop for a second. Okay, so quick summary here. Benjamin Krem, who apparently has been channeling this spirit Maitreya, who is the world teacher, is claiming that there's someday coming ahead. By the way, they uh, the Benjamin Krem's group... Uh, was able to get one of their press releases published in uh, Wall Street Journal's Market Watch at the end of 2008, basically saying that this day of declaration is like really at hand and uh, that it's going to occur like within a week after some star appears in the sky, a star that you can see both day and night. Now, I'm not aware of any stars that we've been able to see both day and night, um, and I, I normally put this stuff under just the fanciful, crazy talk of people who are deceived by the devil. Now, think along with me for a second. Just, let's just postulate for a minute that this guy isn't just the victim of of, of, of a drug overdose and crazy eastern mysticism but that somehow satan is revealing his real plan okay this maitreya character sounds exactly like the man of lawlessness it's the guy who's going to be possessed by satan himself at the end of the ages and benjamin krem says this he's going to appear to everybody declare give us the teaching that we need to experience world peace and there will be spontaneous miracles all throughout the whole world. Man, I hope this is just 
the crazy ravings of of a madman. But what if it isn't? This, again, I, we're just thinking along here for a second. I don't know. What, do you, what am I supposed to make of this? And I bring this to your attention because this is the kind of really far out there when it comes to discernment. You know, what do you do with this? Now, obviously, you compare what this guy is saying to the word of God and you say this is not what Scripture says, but it is what Scripture says. What he's teaching isn't in accord with Scripture, yet it is accord in accord with Scripture in the sense that um, scripture warned of a of a global leader of this magnitude with this type of message. We continue. And in these three ways you will know that that one, and of course only that one, is the world teacher. Awaited by the Christians as the Christ. Listen carefully, okay? Remember when we did our sermon review with Phyllis Tickle a couple weeks ago at uh, Mars Hill Bible Church? She's part of the emergence movement. She spoke at Rob Bell's church on the feminine characteristics of the Holy Spirit. What a great biblical topic that is. Um, and she made this claim that all the world religions, there's a, there's a growing belief that all the world religions follow the same God and are, act, are trying to achieve the same goals. Uh, but the Christian religion is different in its, quote, mysteries. Now, what you're going to hear here... Sorry for the redundancy there. Uh, what you're about to hear is Benjamin Krem basically giving an explanation whereby every world religion could embrace this world teacher who's going to perform these miracles and and speak to us without opening his lips and and you know and declare himself to be whatever he's going to declare himself to be and. The, the the simple solution here is that all the religions follow the same God and that they're all expecting the same guy. Yeah, l l I'm going to back this up so you can hear it in context. Here we go. And in these three ways you will know that that one, and of course only that one, is the world teacher. Awaited by the Christians as the Christ, awaited by Muslims as the Imam Mahdi, Awaited by Jews as the Messiah, awaited by Hindus as Krishna or Kalki Avatar, awaited by Buddhists under his name Maitreya Buddha. Awaited by people of no religious connotation at all, but people who wish for a better life for all, people in political groups who who look for a better way, a saner way to live. <clears throat> People in political groups who look for a better way, a saner way to live. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because Brian McLaren, one of his recent books, is Everything Must Change. And the whole goal of that book is to make this case for uh, shutting down what's called the global suicide machine. <clears throat> All of these will respond to this being who presents himself as a teacher to the world. Our response to this event, positive or negative, will determine the whole future of the world. Talking about sharing and making a choice, Maitreya says, my heart tells me your answer, your choice. And is glad. Thank you very much. 
All right, so that's kind of specimen number one. As we're, I'm having you think along with me as I, I'm trying to make heads or tails of what it is that we're dealing with. Now, from a logical point of view, and logic actually comes out to be rather handy here, there's two choices. The guy's a complete crackpot, and this is just uh, the hopeful wishes of a guy who's obviously been involved in some kind of peyote ritual. Um or the other option is is that he's actually received inside information through this, his channeling of this, quote, Maitreya character and actually tapped into the demonic realm. And the demonic realm has laid out uh, what their plans are, their schemes for the end of the world. That's, that's the other possibility. Now, so... According to Maitreya, uh, Benjamin Krem, this all is supposed to culminate in this guy showing up that all the world religions end up embracing. Now, here is a, an older video from uh, from the, the people who support this Maitreya character. Listen carefully. world teacher, whose name is Maitreya, stands at the head of an enlightened group known as the Masters of Wisdom, who are here to help humanity solve the problems of the world. Okay, so this is an older uh, video regarding Maitreya. He's, uh, he sits at the head of some ascended masters thing. He's not a religious teacher, although I, I believe he's the one expected by all the world's major religions, but he's here first and foremost as a teacher, as a friend and a guide, and that the reason he is here is to lift our consciousness, make us aware of the significance of the time we live in. Never before in human history, history have we had the capacity to destroy ourselves. We have the power to do that. So we are pretty much else, or to change direction, to move forward and create a new golden civilization. And what Maitreya is saying is that that is indeed what we will do. He can see into our hearts and, and sees that we will make the right choices, that most people do want harmony and do want peace. Uh, at the moment, that is not the case in the world we uh, see into our hearts um these people obviously haven't ever heard of the concept of sin and rebellion against the one true god uh, which they are doing in spades but notice okay the scriptures warn us that satan comes to us masquerading as an angel of light he's not going to come showing up with you know the two horns the red union suit and the pitchfork Instead, he's going to masquerade as an angel of light. What's he going to prompt? Well, according to this, let's work with the Maitreya theory for a second. Let's just say Maitreya is the uh, promised man of lawlessness. What's he going to do? Come and offer us world peace. And anybody who would say, hey, that guy's not, he, he's not the real guy. He's the, he's the devil incarnate. Uh, they would basically be, uh, shuffled off into concentration camps as people who are trying to hinder world peace. <clears throat> have a situation where there are millions of people who live in utter poverty, many millions more who are literally starving to death. And he says that the solution to this unspiritual situation is simply by sharing. And if you think of humanity as being a family, a global family, just like in a nuclear family, it makes sense to share what you have among the members of that family. And so what he is saying to us is that if we really want peace, 
then we need to share the resources of the world so that all have adequate food, housing, health care and education. Wow. What was the name of that uh, book from about 20 years ago? All I ever needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. Uh, so the grand solution for the whole world is that we all share. Oh, man. Just, you know. Um. What struck me as the most important thing uh, and the most significant is that my trial's message is we need to share the resources of the world. We can't have people starving in a world of plenty. And if there is a teacher of that stature, when I first heard that, I thought that would be his message. That would be what the Christ would have to say. That's <coughs> that would be what the Christ. Oh man, um, the Jesus, the Christ, the Anointed One, has already come, and he didn't come to solve this problem. He did something far more important. He died on the cross for our sins. But Jesus said, uh, you have to take care of the poor. You have to take care of your brother. And so... Uh, can you give me a... Yeah, never mind. When I heard that that was his message, I knew that this is probably the right teacher. Uh, Maitreya, to me, is a person that, uh, from looking and studying a lot of the religions... Uh, and is a person that all religions talk about, including our own Indians who talk about the Pale One and the return of the Pale One. And uh, I find that fascinating how this one person is really connected into all those religions. Well over a decade. Okay, so Maitreya is going to transcend all the religions and kind of get rolled up into all the religions. Well, funny, you know, the only way that could happen with uh, Maitreya being embraced by Christians is if they completely jettisoned the Bible and forgot about the biblical Jesus. Maitreya himself has appeared to individuals and groups around the world. One of these appearances was actually documented by a newspaper reporter with photographs taken of Maitreya, although none of the media knew at the time that this was Maitreya. According to the report, Maitreya appeared literally out of the blue on the 11th of June, 1988, near Nairobi, Kenya, before a congregation of 6,000 people. Maitreya spoke perfectly in the language of the people, Swahili, and healed many of those before him. Maitreya stood next to the leader of the congregation, a Christian preacher and faith healer named Mary Akatsa. Maitreya then disappeared as magically as he had come. The crowd was convinced that they had seen Christ return. Christians believe there's only one and the only Son of God, and I must admit I thought that too when I was brought up. I was brought up as a Presbyterian, and you know. Oh boy, here we go, an apostate Christian. I sort of went along with Christ and Jesus being the only one, one and only Son of God. But but we're all sons of God, and. <sighs> <sighs> <laughs> Actually, the scripture says that all of us by nature, as a result of the fall, are children of the devil. Oh boy. In all religions, we're all sons of that divine spark. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Buddhist or you're Muslim or you're Jewish or whatever particular religion or non-religion. It doesn't matter if you have no religion. 
A spark of the divine within us? Hmm, that sounds mysteriously like... Go ahead, eat the fruit that God told you not to eat, because he know that you will become like God. And Maitreya is actually here to stimulate that, that spark of the divine within us. So, irrespective of whether we are religious or non-religious, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's a great synthesis that's going on. I think for everyone who sees Maitreya and has some question... Uh, wait, wait, she said there was a, it's a great synthesis going on? A synthesis of all the world religions? Oh boy. About uh, who he is, maybe the, the is not familiar with the complicated uh, process of his emergence. Is just to listen to what he says. He speaks to the inner part of each one, and when he speaks of sharing and love, he is speaking to each of us individually and asking us to take care of each other, just as we would hope other people would take care of us. Okay, so again, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is a little bit different. I'm asking you to think along with me as I try to process this stuff. So there's a move afoot from outside of Christianity, and I'm thinking this has made inroads within Christianity to synthesize the world religions under a world teacher who is going to appear and... Um, well, save the world, so to speak, and teach us all how to share. I wish I was making this up, but you've been hearing it yourself again. I, I'm bringing this up because I want you to come and think along with me, if you would. We're up on our first break, a little bit late on it, actually. If you would like to email me, you can. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Uh, that's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. They don't know that they're 
sins. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. We're back. You're listening to the Twilight Zone edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'm exposing you to some of the rough cut stuff from the lunatic fringe that I find. Sharing it with you, get you to kind of think along with me. Help me out here. I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, which means that we depend on you. That's right. Your financial support is vital, critical. Necessary in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit fightingforthefaith.com and click on our one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. That allows you to instantly uh, use your credit card to send in your gift securely and online. Or you can uh, do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So, all right, we're in the middle of, again, as I've said before, what we're doing here is, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, I want you guys to wander with me as I think out loud. And the idea here is to get you to think about this whole Maitreya thing. And uh, help me out here. Here's a little bit more on Maitreya and the Masters of Miracles. A continuous wave of miraculous events has been reported by news media. But the media has reported these may have a common cause, Maitreya and the Masters. Maitreya and the Masters have created thousands of these phenomena. For example, visions of the Madonna, which appear every evening and give secrets to the children at Medjugorje in Yugoslavia. Statues all over the world which weep real tears or tears of blood. Statues in Ireland made of solid rock which somehow opened their eyes and then closed them. There is a 35-foot rainbow-colored likeness of the Madonna which appeared almost overnight on the windows of a bank in Clearwater, Florida. People come every day to see this striking image which was once vandalized but then somehow seemed to restore itself to its original pristine color. Now, again, so here the followers of Maitreya um, are 
basically claiming that all of these different miracles that are happening around the world in different religions, by the way, are being caused by Maitreya himself. Again, lunatic fringe? I hope so, man. I just, yeah. There is an icon of Jesus in a church in Sydney, Australia, a large crucifix which exudes pure olive oil. The evidence of Maitreya's presence is being shown in these extraordinary miracles. Among the most stunning, 40-foot-high crosses of light which appear like holograms on the front lawn of a Christian Baptist church in Tennessee. Then there are holy messages. In England, young Muslim woman cut into a piece of fruit and found the seeds arranged to spell out, Allah is great, Muhammad is his prophet. Another indicator of Maitreya's presence, healing waters which are beginning to appear around the world as in Tlacote, Mexico. Some of the most miraculous cures, from cancer and AIDS all the way down to warts and boils, have been reported as a result of people visiting these rejuvenating wells. In addition to the one in Mexico, there's a well in Nordenau, Germany, another in India, north of New Delhi. Eventually, 777 of these wells, created by Maitreya, are to be found on every continent around the world. It has been predicted that there will be no end to this perfectly pure healing water which is said to have been magnetized by Maitreya with cosmic energy. <laughs> magnetized with cosmic energy. Whew, bottle me some of that. One of the greatest miracles to be seen on a global scale was the milk miracle in September 1995 in Hindu communities all over the world. The miracle was that ritual offerings to the gods, usually only ceremonial, became real. Surprisingly, Hindu statues appeared to lap up the milk offerings, and literally thousands of gallons disappeared in only four days. All these miracles, created by Maitreya, are occurring within every major religion. There's a Lebanese Muslim child who weeps razor-sharp crystals, but without cutting herself. For well over a decade, Maitreya himself has appeared to individuals and groups around the world. One of these appearances was actually documented by a newspaper reporter with photographs. All right, so okay, so there we there's a little bit more of what's going on with this whole Maitreya thing. All right, so why am I talking about this? This isn't Christianity. It's obviously some bizarre thing, right? Yeah, right. It's some bizarre thing. Uh, but you know, the question is: Is this somehow being? adopted into mainstream thinking. Now, the reason I ask the question is because I've received several emails from people in in Africa, of all places, South Africa, to be more precise, about things that they think I should be paying attention to. And stuff that uh, just seems a little bit, uh, well, bizarre. Just for, for a lack of a better way of putting it, just bizarre okay and i now listen <clears throat> let me read to you uh, some stuff here that's just again uh, what do i what do i make of this um mandela maitreya and a rainbow nation that's right nelson mandela maitreya and a rainbow nation uh, this is uh, from a blog called Discerning the World, and the name of the author is Anonymous. She has re chosen to remain anonymous. I can't blame her, um, but let me write. Uh, let me read. I wrote the above article on the 5th of April, 2008 of last year. I was not going to repost this article until yesterday when I wrote the following article, Transfiguration to Take 
over Africa and then the world. When you read the two, you will see why they are two pieces of a puzzle that fit together. You know, for a long time, I have thought that a, quote, miracle of sorts did indeed happen in South Africa after Mandela was released from prison. No civil war, no bloodshed. It was almost as though it was just another day, a tense one, yes, but peaceful and full of hope. Since 1994, I've been pondering what happened back then. Was it God or was it something else? My question was answered recently when I stumbled across this information. I have known about Maitreya for a long time. I did not, however, know that he had shown himself to Nelson Mandela. Again, listen carefully to what I'm saying here. Okay? I've played to you for you claims from what normally I would consider to be the lunatic New Age fringe. And then I'm pointed to a website whereby there's evidence that this Maitreya character has actually appeared to people, uh, world leaders like Nelson Mandela. So while doing research on religious movements in South Africa, it became very apparent that once again, South Africa will be something, quote, special in the eyes of the rest of the world. One, we were the leaders in the country to learn from when it came to. Uh, turning a very volatile situation into a peaceful situation, Mandela was released from prison after serving 27 years with a spirit of forgiveness towards the National Party government who put him in prison. And then a nation national vote took place and Mandela was peacefully voted in as president of South Af Africa. Something like this is unheard of. Now our next big project that the rest of the world is going to learn from, taking a one-world religion, spiritual transformation, and then spreading it across Africa, and this will then spread to the rest of the world. The rest of the world will look upon Africa with hopeful eyes as Africa, a hopeless continent, is radically transformed. Okay? South Africa is called the Rainbow Nation. The rainbow, uh, bright, elusive, and heavenly, plays a magical, otherworldly part in most ancient and modern belief systems around the world. Again, we see the myriad of human beliefs concerning the rainbow. The complex diversity of the rainbow myth is far-reaching. Its inherent similarities are also, whether it as a bridge to the heavens, a messenger to the, god, uh, to the gods, the archers, divine archers, bow, or mystic intangible entity, the rainbow persists as a multifaceted lesson. Because while any particular idea, i.e. the rainbow, can be perceived in one way uh, to one person, someone else can picture that idea in a very different way. And while we may not be able to fully explain the workings of the world or the purpose of life, we cannot avoid exposing our deepest holes and fears, hopes and fears in the search for the future. Okay, so moving along here, here are some snippets from the website about Maitreya meeting Nelson Mandela. This is taken from Share International by Benjamin Krem, who is Maitreya's channeler. However, Maitreya is revealing himself more and more to individuals around the world. So Benjamin Krem might be out of a job soon. Uh, here we go. This is from the uh, Benjamin Krem's website. Quote, where peoples were oppressed and imprisoned for demanding their rights, their leaders incarcerated and their voices muzzled, Maitreya's direct advice led to the liberation not just of one man, as in the case of Nelson Mandela, but of a whole nation. If just a few years ago someone had said that Melson Mandela in prison for 27 years, a leader of an illegal organization, the ANC, would not only be released but elected president, 
the leader of a new society ending forever apartheid in South Africa, we would not have believed it possible. And yet that is what happened. Against all expectations, Maitreya appeared to Nelson Mandela in his cell and inspired him to meet with President de Klerk and to create a new constitution in South Africa. The energies of Aquarius, Synthesis, and Brotherhood, and Maitreya's energy of love have inspired men and women to bring about the changes in the world which he forecast. In 1988, he forecast the release of Nelson Mandela and the process of detente in South Africa. Again in 1988, when Mrs. Thatcher was at the peak of her powers, Maitreya said that she would resign. And in the same year, he stated that government uh, that statement, which found it most impressive proof in Eastern Europe. Furthermore, Maitreya forecast the ceasefire between Iran and Iraq, the withdrawal of foreign troops from Angola, the global uh, uh, rapprochement between guerrilla forces and national governments, the Armenian earthquake in 1988, and those in California and China in 1989, the international problems of the Soviet Union, and the establishment of peace in Lebanon. In 1988, he promised many people will be healed from AIDS, through the practice of prayer. Okay, so just in doing some research, Nelson Mandela has apparently met with Maitreya. There's a uh, gentleman who uh, has worked, who is a diplomat for the United States named Wayne Peterson, who claims to have uh, met with Maitreya. Um, and the claim is also made that Maitreya has met with or you know, spoken to Mikhail Gorbachev. And uh, there's questions as to whether or not Desmond Tutu has met with Maitreya. So I bring all of this up because this is all some strange stuff from the lunatic fringe. But keep in mind, what's the primary message that we're hearing from the Maitreyaites, for lack of a better word of putting it, um, that all the religions are one. There's a synthesis that's going to occur that the current global situation is going to be transformed into a peaceful one and there's going to be heaven on earth when we all learn to share. <sighs> okay, now, all of this is just a little bit of groundwork. Now, my question is, is that have the uh, emergence people been dipping into the Maitreya weed? Now, I ask this question for a very purpose uh, because, again, I do a lot of dumpster diving, and a lot of times I pick up artifacts from the spiritual dumpster and put them on my shelf, so to speak, or put them somewhere where I can keep an eye on them, you know, and try to figure out how they fit into the bigger puzzle of, of deception and, and false teaching that's, you know, out there in the world. Most of the time, false teaching kind of occurs in isolation. That, for lack of a better term, what happens in Islam doesn't really affect Mormonism or whatever. You, you understand what I'm saying? But I'm seeing pieces that, from one for one reason or another, seem to be fitting together. Now we're going to change gears here, and we're going to go emergent for a little while. Okay, and I'm going to be playing audio from two different uh, sources from the same gathering. Okay, this past week. Uh, the emergent leaders met in Africa uh, for the Amahora gathering, is what it was called. And I'm going to play for you um, 
audio from an emergent leader in Africa by the name of Claude Nikondeha and also Brian McLaren. Just want you to hear this and ask yourself, what is it? Is this somehow related to this Maitreya garbage? It, it may not be. But I think that there's some undercurrent stuff that's similar. Enough to make me go, hmm. And at least come out and put this on my program kind of in rough cut format. Because I want to get your feedback. I want to know what you think. So without any uh, further ado, here is Claude uh, Nikondeha speaking at the just recently finished Amahora gathering an emergent church meeting, if you would, in Africa. Well, it's getting late, but uh, hopefully you will uh, resist the temptation to go to bed. It's so good to be here. My first time in South Africa, I didn't realize we had a cold country in Africa. So there's a lot of surprising thing in this country. I thought I was back in the U.S. somewhere, so developed. I just want to share some thoughts with you tonight, and, and I hope that the thoughts that I'm going to share tonight will be um, some guidelines for the week, or will help our conversation this week. By the way, Amahoro means peace. Uh, shalom. It's the exact same word as shalom. It's, not, it's much deeper than, um, than peace. It, when you come to my house, my mother will welcome you by giving you a big hug. And then she will say to you, Amahoro, Amahoro, Amahoro. And she'll keep repeating it. And then you say back to her until she feels the connection. That there is, there is a peace going from her to you and from you to her. And it's much deeper thought, just like Shalom or, or Salama. We are, many of us, on a trajectory of transformation in our communities and countries. We are working for something more than our personal salvation. Okay, listen really carefully to what he is saying here we're working for something more bigger than our own personal salvation we are investing in the restoration of all things the we're investing in the restoration of all things all things creation in its entirety all things in heaven and on earth are being restored, reconciled, and transformed for the glory of God. Amen? Uh, no, I, I can't say amen to that. What are you talking about? Because when I read the scriptures, the Apostle Peter says that the universe will be destroyed. The the, the atoms, the, the world, the universe melted. God's going to destroy the world and then create a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth. Where does it say in Scripture that God's going to restore all things? 
Desmond Tutu, a son of South Africa and a fitting mentor for us gathered here today, speaks of the principle of transfiguration. And this is what he says, he says, nothing, no one, and no situation is untransfigurable that the whole of creation, nature, waits expectantly for its transfiguration, when it will be translucent with divine glory. The, the principle of transfiguration? What is that? We are collaborating with Christ as his works to bring the ultimate transfiguration of the world. This image of transfiguration has really captured my imagination. Uh, yeah, imagination is the right word, because uh, I'm not reading this in scripture. So I submitted to you tonight for some corporate reflection. Transform, a familiar word among us. It means to change something in its, com in its composition, in its structure. It means change something from, for, from its current situation to the best. This is our work as community organizers. To bring about such change on the ground. But transfiguration brings another set of connotations. It adds luminosity. Enrichment. Some sort of exaltation. Indeed, it means to give a new and exalted appearance. To bring about a change for the better. To transfigure seems to elevate the endeavor or to deepen it maybe notice the, the we're not he's we're, they're not into just saving souls they're into something bigger transforming transfiguring the very creation itself where's the gospel let me share a story Last summer, for the first time, I visited a Batwa village in Burundi, also known in some African countries as the Pygmies in, in the Congo. And this particular village is just outside uh, the city, the capital city of Bujumbura, and one of uh, the, uh, the Batwa members with us, Everest, my friend Everest. And by the way, for the Burundians and the Rwandese who have struggle with English, can sit close to each other maybe and help one another with the translation. So when we went to visit the village of Bubanza, uh, we were welcomed with a lot of dancing and, and, and singing as they usually do for their visitors. And this particular day they had prepared a small space for, uh, for, for, to share conversation and share gifts with the village leaders. So we sat down in this little space and I happened to sit next to the village leader of that particular village. And in a Burundian tradition, the way you get to know someone, uh, you ask them for their name. Now I'm not talking about Christian names, I'm talking about the name that the parents give to their child. And it usually is a, has a significance. You know, it's tell, it tells the story of the circumstances around the family when this child was born. 
So I asked the, the leader of this village, I said, what's your name? In other words, what's your story? And then he looked at me, he told me, my name is Nazina. Nazina means I don't have one. It means my name is no name. Now he didn't need to say anymore. It means that when he was born, there was no hope. There was nothing hopeful. There was no future that the parents could possibly see for him. So therefore, there was no need to struggle and look for a name for a child that is not going to see tomorrow. So your name is no name. His name communicated the death of the despondency that the Bato people experience. In a moment, I, I realized the invisibility. And worse yet, I realized how connected I am to Nazina. In that moment, I knew my existence was bound to Nazina. My heart was pierced. I was... It was a moment of transfiguration for me. It was a moment when God allowed me to see something more truly and more deeply. The encounter with Nazina changed my plans. There was a clarity about what I was to be doing, and it was in partnership with Nazina. All right, I'm going to pause right here. We're going to take our second break and pay some bills. Again, you're thinking along with me as I give to you some raw stuff that I've uh, pulled out of the dumpster diving adventures lately and just wanting you to think along with me and ask yourself some questions, some tough questions. Is what we're hearing from the emergent church similar to what we're hearing from the Maitreya people? It might be. Just might be. Um, if you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can uh, ask to be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name is Pirate Christian there. Again, this is a different version of Fighting for the Faith. Just throwing some stuff out, seeing what sticks to the wall. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God... Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally, 
We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife. I love my kids. And I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. All right, we're back. Launching into hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Today's Twilight Zone edition. You know, it's fun is that uh, just going through this little process helps me to process this uh, information a little bit. I apologize for giving you rough cut stuff. Here's the deal. My personal guess on uh, Benjamin Krem and this Lord Maitreya stuff, probably, more than likely, just complete New Age pipe dreams. The thing that's really bugging me, though, is that some of these Maitreya-esque themes have found their way into so-called Christian leaders. <clears throat> For example, let me read. Um, in, back in uh, a book review, there was a, back in 2004, uh, <clears throat> Desmond Tutu wrote a book called God Has a Dream, A Vision of Hope for Our Time. And here's a book review by a guy by the name of Josh Coyle. Here's what he says. Desmond Tutu, former Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, uh, recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986, writes with infectious good humor and solid belief in God and humanity. 
In, in, in God Has a Dream, his most soul-searching book published on the 10th anniversary of South Africa's democracy and the, uh, and the fall of apartheid, Tutu presents a vision of hope for our time. All over this magnificent world, God calls us to extend his kingdom of peace and wholeness, of justice and goodness, compassion, of caring, of sharing, of laughter, of joy, and of reconciliation. God is transfiguring this world right at this very moment uh, through us because God believes in us and because God loves us. Any of you familiar with any passages of Scripture that said that God believes in us? Okay, well, let me continue. What can separate us from God? Well, nothing, absolutely nothing. And as we, uh, let's see, as we share God's love with our brothers and sisters, uh, God's other children, there is no tyrant that can resist us, no oppression that cannot be ended, no hunger that cannot be fed, no wound that cannot be healed, no hatred that cannot be turned to love, no dream that cannot be fulfilled. He describes the nonviolent transformation of the country into a multiracial democracy as miraculous, and the elections as a religious experience, a transfiguration experience. Nobody could have ever dreamt that South Africa would become a beacon of hope. Tutu shares his vision based on the Bible and his own observation and experiences as both a man of God and the chairman of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up by Nelson Mandela to prevent violence and revenge from derailing the transformation of South Africa. Tutu's convincing examples of transformation include Nelson Mandela in his 27 years in prison. He developed the wisdom to choose reconciliation instead of revenge. His suffering for the sake of others was crucial in making him a moral and political leader respected by all. The individualistic West, with its emphasis on achievement, can learn much from African ideas, says Tutu, especially Ubuntu, a concept which re uh, recognizes that we are part of a larger group of humanity. Ubuntu is about compassion, hospitality, and the capacity for sharing. The way to make the world a better place, he says, is to consider ourselves as equals, a family. Active work on healing instead of seeking separation is the path he recommends to world Leaders, The full participation of women in every aspect of society is needed. Tutu believes that unleashing the power of women has the potential to transform our world in extraordinary and many as yet unimagined ways. He also calls us to take action in the name of transformation, beginning by looking at ourselves and the people around us in a new way, which Tutu calls the eyes of the heart so that we are able to see the inner light shining through their outer forms, and that, and that will transform us all. For somebody who's supposed to be a Catholic archbishop, his themes sure do sound new agey, don't they? Now, I, I, I bring this up because uh, as we continue to listen to this uh, speech, opening speech from this just recently convened, conference, emergent conference in South Africa, you know, the question I have is, are we listening to biblical Christianity or are we listening to a Christianity 
that has been polluted, corrupted by new age doctrine and ideas. Because ultimately, whether or not Maitreya shows up on the world scene or not is, quite frankly, I don't care. What I do care about are Christians who are mixing biblical doctrine with New Age ideas. And I think that's what's going on with the emergent movement. I really think they're starting to do that. And his family and his friends. Moments of transfiguration set us on a trajectory of transformation towards the ultimate transformation, transfiguration of the world. Moments of transfiguration, if we are open to them, recognize them, lean into them, set us on a journey that will help us see the ultimate transfiguration. Where is any of this taught in the Bible? This, these are just words. This is not grounded in anything in the Bible. This is grounded in the air. That ground can be in Burundi, among the Bato people, in Pakat, among warring tribes, in Guguletu Township, among those still suffering from injustice. Those moments of seeing truly ignite something in us and inform the reality on the ground. I believe that those moments of transfiguration set us on a God-ordained course, but also whet our appetite for consummation for the ultimate transfiguration. I propose that we gathered here live between God-given moments of transfiguration and the ultimate transfiguration of the world. Between the bookends of transfiguration, we leave out the work of transformation. Changing the conditions on the ground is our day-to-day charge. Whoa, 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 whoa. Changing the conditions on the ground is a day-to-day charge? I thought when Jesus left, he said that repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. He didn't leave instructions about changing the conditions on the ground. Fostering healthy conversation during election season. Searching out parcels of land for a community development project for the landless. Confronting the HIV AIDS victims in a nearby slum. Facilitating reconciliation among those in a grip of long-standing ethnic hostility. Now, by the way, all of these things that he's listing are valid acts of mercy in showing Christ's mercy to our neighbor and serving and loving him. But listen to what he's saying. The reason he's doing this is because he believes that we've been left with the charge of changing the conditions on the ground. And because in his opening statement, he says, we are on a trajectory of transformation. We are working for something more than the salvation of the soul. 
We are investing in the restoration of all things. Uh, all things, creation in its entire, all things created in heaven on earth and are being restored, reconciled and transformed into God's dream for his world. Much different than showing the mercy that Christ showed us to our neighbor. This is something completely different. Fighting the ignorance and fear that gives rise to xenophobia. Digging wells in the rich communities, extending compassion to the widows of war, nurturing and housing the orphans. Again, all valid Christian things that we should be doing. But it's as if this is all these good works have been hijacked by a Christless, gospelless form or shell of Christianity. Dismantling unjust systems. That keep people impoverished. The first time we gathered in Uganda, we spoke of the gospel of transformation that eclipses the old gospel of evacuation. We are the gospel of transformation that eclipses the gospel of evacuation. Listen to what he's saying. Not merely about saving souls for heaven. When has the gospel only been merely about saving souls for heaven? When has the biblical gospel only been about saving souls for heaven? So that we can escape this world. But we are engaged in the work of transformation here on earth and in our communities. This is a different gospel, folks. The gospel of Jesus propels us into our communities to bring the liberating and transforming message of Jesus to those living on the ground zero. Last year, we explored the ramification of the gospel of reconciliation while in Rwanda. The work of, of the reconciling, peacemaking, forgiveness in places like Rwanda, Kenya, South Africa. This is a part of the gospel imperative that Jesus entrusts us with. Our work on the ground is spiritual. Our spirituality is expressed in those concrete actions Confronting, facilitating, nurturing, digging, fostering, housing, and feeding. Our spiritual lives are lived out as agents of transformation. I thought we were ambassadors of reconciliation, with the me given the message that God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. Again, notice that they're using biblical terms, but the meanings have all changed. But our good works and our good efforts need roots and nourishment to sustain us from moments of transfiguration to the ultimate transfiguration. To do the work of transformation without the accompanying spirituality is to run on empty. As Africans, we have been at this for a long time. 
we have been working to change the conditions on the ground. And it would seem we have such a long way to go. We cannot afford to let our wells run dry. To borrow again from this Montutu, what is the spirituality of transformation that sustains us from the beginning to the glorious end? I think the African Reformation has to do with this very question. How have we been sustained this far? And how will we find nourishment in the season to come? Because the work is not done yet. We are still awaiting transfiguration, right? <clears throat> we're awaiting transfiguration. I thought we were awaiting Christ coming back from heaven. He said that he would that he would return the same way he went, and that the worlds would the world would see him returning in judgment. What is this? What are the spiritual resources that will fund our transforming endeavors? The spiritual resources. It's a weird way to talk. This is what I hope we will explore together this week. I hope our sessions will be centered on this very question. I hope our dinner conversation will be about how we each experience sustenance while cultivating transform transformation on the ground in our home communities. Our friend Brian McLaren writes that spirituality is a word that somehow captures the idea of a viable, sustainable, meaningful way of life. Really? Spirituality is about a viable, sustainable, meaningful way of life. Where is that in the scriptures? I, I'm, I, you know, again, you know, I, you're listening to this with me, and this, I understand this is rough cut in the sense that I'm not really providing you with solid answers. I'm trying to figure out what is this. And why is it that this sounds so similar, so similar to the New Age ideas that we're hearing from the Maitreyaites? I have heard people speak about spirituality as an ethereal quality of life or as a set of religious activities. But I love how Brian describes spirituality as a way of life. Number one is viable, meaning practical, workable, doable. Number two, it's sustainable, meaning nourishing for the long haul. <clears throat> Are any of these categories uh, what the uh, apostles taught regarding the gospel, that it was practical, viable, sustainable? Or did they proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Which, by the way, the Holy Spirit uses that message to give faith, raise somebody from the dead spiritually, indwell them with the Holy Spirit, bury them, in, you know, all these things that happens 
and their lives are truly transformed. But these guys are saying that spirituality is is somehow moving us forward to the ultimate transformation of the world. That we're the ones that are going to accomplish this through this new spirituality. Number three is meaningful. Meaning rich with significance. Cultivating a viable, sustainable, and meaningful way of life of the agent of transformation in God's world. How do we do that? These are social, economic, and political categories. These are not gospel categories. How do African voices illumine this inquiry? This Montutu sketches out his own understanding of spirituality that is a good foundation for our discussion, I believe. Number one, the spirituality of transformation has a redemptive understanding of suffering. Now, this doesn't surprise me that an African elder see a connection between suffering and spirituality. In Africa, we have plenty of suffering. It is an unavoidable part of our landscape. We as a continent suffer ethnic injustice, food shortage, multiple health pandemics, lack of medical supplies, unfair trade agreements, land disputes, extreme poverty, and the cheer loss of life across Africa is a deep and perpetual suffering. According to Tutu, this suffering can either embitter us or enable us. We have seen both results across the continent. Bitterness that triggers genocide and the nobility of Mandela when he walked out of 27 years of prison with a spirit of forgiveness. But we have a choice to make when we encounter suffering. Will we nurse the seeds of bitterness or die to those urges and resentment and instead cultivate nobility? Where is Christ in this Christian emergent conference? Part of our spiritual tenor depends on how we choose to respond to suffering. Tutu points out that the reason we can allow suffering to ennoble us is a matter of context. When we are able to see the larger purpose of our suffering, it is transformed, transmuted. It becomes redemptive. Our suffering becomes redemptive? Redemption. Um, by the way, that's purchase talk. Um, redemption. You would talk about, like, for instance, you could redeem a coupon. Uh, redemption has a lot to do with slavery talk. Somebody who has been purchased from slavery has been, quote, redeemed. How can my suffering or your suffering be, quote, redemptive? This is not a biblical category that my own suffering is somehow redemptive. Christ's suffering is redemptive, not mine. Suffering. 
when we realize that we are working towards the ultimate transfiguration of the world, today's suffering is put in its place. Oh, okay, it's redemptive because we we are working for and towards the ultimate transfiguration of the world. This is a corrupt eschatology that has a corrupt soteriology. This is dangerous. In its rightful perspective. And we can suffer it knowing it does not have the last word. The pain is transformed, redeemed, and now somehow usable. Richard Raw, Catholic contemplative, adds that pain... A what? A, a, a Richard Rohr, a Catholic contemplative. A con- what is a contemplative? Somebody who engages in a lot of um, mystic mysticism uh, practices, basically trying to experience God directly through meditation, contemplation, um, basically the same kind of practices you would expect to see in the Eastern religions if not transformed, will be transmitted. Think about that. If we do not allow our pain, our suffering to be transformed, it will be spread out to others. Or at the very least, spread out to the other part of our life. Think of all the untransformed pain and how it has spread. In genocide, xenophobia, rape, greed. Uh, uh, we, Claude, we call that sin. And human beings, by nature, are not good. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, every single human being has what's called original sin. That is, that they are conceived and born sinful and rebellious against God. Oh, boy. Greed that deprives the poor. But right, that's a result of our sinful nature. But when our pain is transformed, it contributes to the healing of the world. Oh, so when our pain is transformed... See, because we're just passing along the pain that we've received from people. But when our pain is transformed, it becomes redemptive and we don't longer pass along that pain. Wow. Completely misses it in regards to what Scripture teaches is human nature. So then, how we decide to respond to the pain and suffering in our life is a very spiritual matter. Tutu concludes, it seems that in this universe, redemption of any kind happens only through some form of suffering. Suffering, redemption. Pain, transfiguration. Cross, resurrection. I think a lot of us look to the West as a mentor in many ways. We look at their prosperity, democracy, innovation, education, Maybe we even look to their churches for an example, for some equipping or even funding. 
But I think we need to consider how our Western friends respond to suffering. I don't think I'm misrepresenting the truth when I say that most Westerners work hard to avoid suffering at all costs. And they have the resources to do it pretty well. A slight headache and they reach for an aspirin. A hard choice to be made and they distract themselves in front of the TV. A deep personal loss and they open the liquor cabinet or the refrigerator. Is this how we in Africa want to respond to suffering? Will this bring about a spiritual maturing that will contribute to the healing of the world? Contribute to the healing of the world. What is this eschatology? What is this? African and Western, we need to agree that facing our sufferings together might be the more wise course. Though it may be harder. Jesus told us to carry our cross, to follow in his footsteps into the Nivet into the suffering. Uh, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Consider yourself to be a dead man. Um, and when I see the connection between suffering and redemption, it starts to make some strange sense. We follow in the suffering because we follow him in the redemption. They are connected. No cross, then no crown. As we suffer... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whose suffering redeemed us? Mine? Yours? Or Christ's? And allow that pain to be redeemed, we contribute to the transfiguration of the world in some mystical way. We're redeeming the world through our suffering? Again, what is this? We are partnering with Christ in the restoration of all things. Number two, the spirituality of transformation has Ubuntu as the foundational understanding of people. Tutu states, we are set in a delicate network of interdependence with our fellow human beings and all of creation. This is a foundational understanding of our humanity as one connected to the others. In Africa, we call this Ubuntu. We are persons through other persons. Our humanity is all bound up together. Yours, mine, those outside this camp, those around the world. We are interconnected and we are affected by the well-being of one another. When someone is humiliated, I am humiliated. When another is going to bed on an empty stomach, I am not satisfied. When you are brokenhearted, my joy cannot be complete. I am diminished when you are not well. We are connected. When I first visited the Bato village again and encounter Nazina, 
and realize that in 2008 they are human beings living this way, I realize that my own humanity depended on their humanity. My Christian journey depended on their humanity. I felt personally diminished by their circumstances because I knew their shared humanity connected them in an, in an avoidable way. My very spirituality depended on the living conditions of Nazina family. That is Uwunu. I recall Marius when he came to the U.S. and addressed a group of Americans. And he told them that partnering with Africa, caring for the situation on the ground in Africa was vital to their well-being. Why? Because if Africans were not well, then Americans were not well either. The well-being of my American friends was dependent on, on and connected with the well-being of my brothers and sisters in Africa. That is Ubuntu. Now take this a step further. Think about victims of genocide and the people who did the killings of that same genocide. Even they are connected to one another. Even they are diminished by the other's suffering, ignorance, and anger of the other. They are not only connected through the act, they are connected in their very humanity. All must be healed. Victim, perpetrator, survival, beneficiary. This is why Jesus insists on forgiveness to restore all parties. To recognize the humanity in each one, call it out. To offer wholeness to each fractured soul. Another stunning, stunning word from this one, Tutu. If you are to be true partners with God in the transfiguration of His world and help bring this triumph of love over hatred, you must begin by understanding that as much as God loves you, God equally loves your enemies. Again, notice he is using biblical language, but the definitions are different radically different it sounds loving and peaceful and kind and good and sounds like something Jesus would be all about working with God to bring about the transformation of the world where is that in the Bible when we accept the truth of Ubunu we realize that we are all connected, even we and our enemies. And God loves them as passionately as He loves us. We have this in common with those we hate, those who have hurt us, those who we think deserve our scorn. Even then, we are connected. So our futures are intertwined. So Jesus tells us to love our enemies, pray for them, because He knows that our healing is connected to their healing. <clears throat> My healing is connected to Christ. 
God reconciling himself to the world in Jesus Christ on the cross. Thirdly, the spirituality of transformation has a contemplative posture towards God. A what? By this, Tutu means that everyone is meant to have that space inside where they can hear God's voice. I have a space where I hear God's voice. It's in my Bible. That's where I hear God's voice. I actually read the very words that the Holy Spirit had written. I'm not putting God in a box because it's the Holy Spirit who inspired the... Man, you know, again, what is this contemplative got to find the hear the voice of God within me? This requires regular stillness, quiet time alone. This is a large part of how we cultivate the contemplative space where we can hear God. Oh, this is dangerous, man. This is, is this any different than what we heard Rick Warren say in the sermon we reviewed last week? Yeah, the, the sermon about, uh, you know, learning the seven secrets of stress relief from Jesus Christ's life. Oh, boy. The first, there is the quiet. Next, we lean in and listen. To the silence and then to the voice of God. We also pray, we converse with God. Tending to our unique and individual relationship with God provides nourishment for us as we engage in the community work. Wait, 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 wait. So hearing God's voice within me provides nourishment for me rather than actually reading, marking, inwardly digesting and meditating on God's written word? That doesn't nourish me? Let's see. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus says to Satan in quoting Deuteronomy in the, in the, in the process. Um, I'm sorry, but nowhere is God's word supposed to be that voice inside of me. Instead, it's been written down and recorded for me. Wow. To which we have been called. This constant conversation keeps us keeps our spiritual flexi- flexible before God, spiritually hydrated for the work. So God's word doesn't water me, but that voice of God that I hear inside of me keeps me hydrated. Finding such a stillness might be the most challenging thing for us as we go about our daily business in our communities. We are constantly fielding calls, making visits, running errands, keeping up with all the social obligations. You mean serving our neighbor in our vocation? We are in constant motion. It seems as an uh, it seems like that's all we do. It will be easy to convince ourselves that our action is more important than our stillness. 
we have to get the food and the blankets to the refugee camp in Nakuru. Yeah, you know, the, the, the food and the blankets, the refugees in the refri- refugee camp would really appreciate the food and the blankets. We need to provide shelter, meals, safety for the foreigners of the warehouse. I have to become a makeshift ambulance and get this mother and child to the clinic. This is bad? How again is this bad? It is important that we do those things. No doubt, no question. No time for stillness today. I have often heard that there is no hurry in Africa. But some days, there seems to be no rest in Africa. We are busy on the ground doing important things that matter to our communities, absolutely. But yet, stillness is a resources we cannot forego. I think this is a challenge for all community organizers. Making space to be still and quiet. Leaning into the practice of listening of, to God. How about leaning into the practices of opening your Bible and reading it? I, I boy, I tell you, you know. Oh, oh man. All right, let me let me switch gears here. Well, let's listen to a little Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren. From the same conference. Um, Brian said, the less I say about him, the better. And so I just want to give a little nugget for you. Um, of Again, this is Brian McLaren, who just this past week was speaking in South Africa. What I think of when I think of Brian. Um, last year, we were in Rwanda at the gathering. And Brian was due to speak pretty much like he is right now. And the only thing he wanted to make sure of was that he didn't speak too much. And so he went and gathered eight different people and made sure that those eight people had microphones. And he spoke for about five minutes at a time and then posed questions to the eight people. And so, Brian, that speaks to me of um, a man who's not only full of wisdom, but who is teachable and willing to learn and to listen. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to share with us tonight because you have a gift of giving me language. And I know there's people in this room that, um, that's been their experience. And so thank you for being with us, and we look forward to hearing from you. <clears throat> thank you. Thanks. But, Renee, I should say I'm much less wise this year because I'm going to talk for three hours. <laughs> But those are kind words. It is a great pleasure to be here. Uh, For all of the people who I haven't met yet, uh, I look forward to meeting you. And for all of the friends from previous years, it's it's very good to be together. I I would like to make a deal with you, okay? Here's the deal. Uh, I would like to share some things that I think are important and true that many of you will disagree with. So... I would like to ask for nonviolence. But I I would like to ask you, from the outset, I'm not worried about you agreeing, but I hope that you will think 
and, and consider uh, what, what I'd like to open up uh, for us tonight. Uh, the theme that the, the organizers uh, chose for this is to talk about an African Reformation. Uh, and I'd like to offer some reflections on this Reformation, and especially I'd like to talk about what shapes the direction uh, that this Reformation takes. And uh, just to pick up from some things that uh, Kenzo said this morning, let me define very simply colonialism as uh, the view that European or Western culture in the tradition of the Greeks and the Romans is the normal and normative and superior culture. Uh, when, there are many kinds of colonialism. For example, I understand many people in South Africa draw their heritage from Bantu tribes who started in West Africa and, in a sense, colonized eastward and then colonized southward. Uh, so there, the history of domination ha happens all over the world. But there is a special kind in the history of this planet of colonization that goes back to the Greeks and the Romans. And I'm going to have us thinking about that a lot tonight uh, because it's affected all of us. Um, and uh, when you think that the culture of the Greeks and Romans is superior then all other cultures are not normal. They're other or they're different or they're inferior. And what I'm going to suggest is that the Christian religion from about the 3rd century or 4th century up until the present has, in a sense, bought into that belief system, has, in a sense, agreed that the tradition of the Greeks and the Romans is normal. Okay, this is going to be interesting. Uh, so uh, if you think that the Christian religion is the best religion out there, is true and right, you've bought into Greek and Roman colonialism. Oh, boy. Now, in the early church, it wasn't this way. For the first 200-plus years of the church's history, there was a lot of arguments about the relationship between the message of Jesus and the culture of the Greeks and the Romans. But that's changed. And in a post-colonial situation, people are questioning this assumption. And many of us who are Christians now are trying to imagine what would the Christian faith look like in the next 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 years if it stops being a Greco-Roman religion and becomes a world religion. What? Christianity is a Greco-Roman religion? Oh, boy. And by world religion, I don't mean one culture that dominates the world, but becomes a faith that is given shape and voice and tone and texture by Africans and Latin Americans and Asians and Europeans as well, but working together maybe for the first time in history as true colleagues and true creative partners and collaborators with one another and with God. Now, in order to... Collaborators with one another and God. Colla I'm a collaborator with God. What does that sentence mean? What is this? Ask questions like that. We have to do some dangerous things. And we're going to try to do them. You mean like engage in heresy? 
But by choosing the term African Reformation, we're bringing to mind the Great Reformation of almost 500 years ago. Uh, it's 2009, so in eight years, if my math is correct, it will be 2017. And that will be the 500th anniversary of the year that Martin Luther, on October 31st, nailed a document with 95 theses, or 95 statements, and, uh, and was inviting people to enter into debate. And when you think about what happened with those 95 theses and with the Protestant Reformation, they succeeded in creating a new state. By state, I mean a new status. So you could think of the old box, the blue box of Roman Catholicism, and then Martin Luther puts down statements that become debated, and then you end up with a new box of Protestantism, an old state of Christianity and a new state of Christianity. And if you ever- No, 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 no. Okay, got it. Got to correct Brian here. Um, the Protestant Reformation didn't desire to create a new kind of Christianity. It was a reformation. The attempt was to get back to the original proclamation of the gospel and to get back to biblical Christianity because God's word had been locked up in the Latin language and the Catholic Church wasn't letting God's word out on the table in any way that people could listen to it and hear it in a way that they understood what it said, and they replaced sound Christian doctrine with mythologies, mythologies such as praying to the saints, the doctrine of purgatory, the doctrine of penance, the doctrine—do you see what I'm saying here? Praying to the saints, the perpetual virginity of Mary, Mary being a co-redemptrix with Christ. All of these bizarre doctrines were being thrown in and being claimed to be Christian or Catholic teaching when they weren't. So they wanted to reform the church and bring it back to its original state. In fact, the Lutheran reformers, particularly Martin Chemnitz, did a fantastic job of showing how Lutheran Christianity was not a deviation from ancient Christianity, but was a restored version of that exact same teaching. Ever read the 95 Theses? Uh, very few people have, but they begin by inviting people into debate. Now, unfortunately, when you create debate, sometimes you create hate because the parties are in a win-and-lose argument about who's right and who's wrong. But that's the way it's supposed to be because they were wrong. How could you be right about praying to Mary? They were wrong. How could you be right about the, about the selling of indulgences? That was a non-Christian, satanic, non-biblical practice. And people were going and spending money and buying an indulgence to spring their dead relatives out of purgatory? This is a matter of right and wrong. Truth versus error. Oh boy. Man, oh man. And what happened in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation, very few people talk about. 
but it is a period of violence that makes anything that's happening among among Muslims today seem rather tame. Uh, if you ever go to Germany, southern Germany, there are areas where in what was called the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648, 50% of the men, women, and children of certain regions died. And the estimates vary widely, but perhaps 30% of people in northern Europe died directly or indirectly because of religious wars with Protestants fighting Catholics, Catholics fighting Protestants, and Protestants fighting Protestants. And so in the name of God and in the name of Jesus, people are killing each other. Now, Brian, I would never defend somebody who tried to use God to justify murdering somebody. It's real simple. Anybody, any Protestant who killed another Protestant in the name of God, and any Protestant who killed a Catholic in the name of God, the problem is not truth versus error or that their doctrine is incorrect. It's that they're sinners who are committing sins. So your solution here is to get rid of these categories that sound doctrine? And if they weren't killing each other directly... The men were off fighting and no one was there to plant the crops so there would be a famine and people would die because they were so obsessed with their religious wars that they couldn't get on with the things to keep life going. So sometimes religious debate creates hate and that leads to violence. And guess what violence in the name of religion leads to? Among other things, atheism. Because good people, moral people say it would be better not to believe in God than to believe in a God who makes you kill people. So um, what I'd like to suggest, if 500 years ago we had the Great Reformation, and if we're in the early stages of what some people are calling a great emergence, something that an African Reformation would be a major player in, I'd like to suggest that what we need for the next leg of the journey The last thing we need is 95 new theses. Listen to this. The last thing we need is 95 new debates. The last thing we need is having even more violence among people who call themselves Christians. Wait a second. Hold on a second there, Brian. Um, The 30 Years' War, how long ago was that fought? Uh, Brian, it does not automatically follow that when you have a religious debate about doctrine, that it leads to violence. In fact, I would consider that to be, from a historical point of view, the exception, not the norm. I'd like to suggest what we need are questions. If statements can bring you to a new state, only questions can bring you on a new quest. Nice play on words, but that's just complete... Gobbledy gook. Do you see the difference between a new state and a new quest? In a new state, you say, we've arrived and we can lay out the dimensions and we could create the new box. But in a quest, you say, no, we're searching for something. We're on a journey. And in... You never arrive? 
you just are on a journey. We're not wandering around. It's the children of Israel in the desert for 40 years. In this time, for eternity, they never arrive at the promised land. Instead of ever allowing hate to be part of this quest, we have to say this is a quest of love, that we have to love one another no matter what. So love means that we don't tell somebody that they're wrong. We don't, we don't engage in creating sound doctrine versus heresy. Oh, man. Anami Bosch is here, and, and a great Af South African theologian, uh, David Bosch, her, her husband, uh, wrote words that I think are very helpful for us at this moment. He talked about the importance of humility in, the in theological uh, discussion and conversation. And he had a great insight about a balance that we need to maintain. He said, humility means showing respect for our forebears in the faith, for what they have handed down to us, even if we have reason to be acutely embarrassed by their racist, sexist, and imperialist bias. The point is that we have no guarantees that we will do any better than they did. Now, do you understand the balance he's trying to strike when we think about our past? And I'm going to say some rather difficult things about our past in the next few minutes. But we have to do it with a spirit of humility. Uh, maybe you've heard of a, a Catholic uh, writer, British, named G.K. Chesterton. And G.K. Chesterton said that tradition is the democracy of the dead. I think this is a very African idea. That, we, that just because people are no longer visible to us, we should not forget about them and act as if they have no voice. So in tradition, we're remembering the voices of the past. Now, if I could add a small footnote to Chesterton, here's what I would say. We have to have democracy of the dead. They need to be given a vote, but they cannot be given a veto. You understand? Uh, and so we have to listen. And as David Bosch said, we have to be honest when we're embarrassed by their racism, their sexism, their imperialism. But we have to do it with humility because it's an easy shortcut to pride when you put down other people. But when you understand they were doing the best they could in their time and we will do the best we can in our time but we have no reason to be proud. Is that a good spirit, amen, for us to start with? I'd like to suggest that we need a new quest because one of the things that needs to be changed is the assumption that the Christian faith is primarily something that's handed to us from the past. What? The Christian faith is primarily something that's handed to us from the past is a wrong assumption? Oh, boy. I'd like to suggest that the journey of following Jesus is primarily something that is given to us from the future. It's an invitation to move into the future. It's God out ahead of us saying, move toward the future I have for you. It's God inviting us toward God's own way and inviting us in God's own path. Um, what about... Sound doctrine, the scriptures, um, Christ crucified for our sins, you know, um, dedicating ourselves to the apostolic teaching. That's all past. 
uh, it's an ugly thing. And a couple of years ago, I was asked to give a, a, a seminar on the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. And I asked myself a question I'd had in my mind. I thought, how did the people who justified slavery use the Bible to do it? So I went, and it's not easy to find pro-slavery literature. Just like it's probably going to be harder and harder to find pro-apartheid literature because nobody wants to publish it and keep it in circulation. But it's out there, and I found it. And there were so many books written in America justifying slavery using the Bible. And brothers and sisters, we use the Bible exactly the same way today to justify a hundred things. And we've never questioned the way we use the Bible. We just stopped using it for that purpose. But we're just as susceptible to use it for other purposes that could be equally harmful. Until we face these issues and dealt with them even though they're painful. And of course, it's not just black slavery in my country, but it's the plight of what happened to the native peoples. By the way, just because somebody <clears throat> twists and misuses God's word, which, by the way, we document quite a bit here at Fighting for the Faith uh, in the sermons that we review here, just because somebody misuses God's word to justify bad things doesn't mean that the Bible isn't true. It means that they're guilty of twisting God's word. Again, when it comes down to sound biblical hermeneutics, historical grammatical method, context, context, context. What was the Holy Spirit conveying? And how the Bible was used to justify land theft and our own version of apartheid, which still exists in many ways uh, in relation to the native peoples. And similar things, we have people here from Australia and New Zealand. Similar things happened there. And they've happened all over the world. And the Christian faith, this happened on the watch of the Christian faith. Wait, wait, wait. you know, I hate to say this, Brian. Um, uh, this happened on the watch of the Christian faith. By the way, um, the... People in the United States who fought slavery, the abolitionists, these were religious Christian people who were using the scriptures to fight slavery. But things happening on a Christian... When, when was the... Which country... Uh, can you name is a Christian country? Is the United States a Christian nation? Answer, no, because Christ is not king. Um, is Great Britain a Christian nation? No, Christ has never been king. Are there Christians in Great Britain and in the United States? Yep. Are there people who are churchgoers who've done terrible, heinous things? Yep. They are all sinners. All of us are sinners. <laughs> By the way, notice that the categories he's working within are classic Marxist categories. Just wanted to point that out. And the Christian faith, we now celebrate people like William Wilberforce and others who stood up against slavery. And then we let Christianity take the credit for ending slavery. 
But brothers and sisters, it's not right if we don't also face the way that the Christian faith justified slavery and racism and all the rest. It's going on right now in Palestine. This is a photograph while Bush was still president of a Palestinian who's trying to help Americans understand what it's like to be a Palestinian today. And I don't know how it is here, but in the United States, you can hear a sermon every day on the Christian radio station saying why the Palestinians aren't important and the Israelis are. So these things are still going on. And some of you tomorrow, I highly encourage you to go to the you, apartheid museum. You, you mean, Brian, that there's people out there that are misinterpreting God's word to justify evil? Yeah, there are. The solution is not to get rid of sound biblical hermeneutics. The solution is not to stand up for the truth and to stop making statements and go on a quest. Uh, you tackle the error, and show people what God's Word really teaches. Even if it's unpopular and it makes people want to threaten you with death, you speak the truth. You call a thing what it is. And from the very sign on the front of the building, it will start telling you things. And there's painful, painful history. And some of us who are in this room this afternoon got a little feeling of some of that history today. And I had the opportunity a couple of years ago to go down to Robben Island and uh, see where Nelson Mandela was in prison for much of the, his 27 years. And it's not a good picture. This is his jail cell. And uh, uh, that's a better picture sometimes, but it's, that's the little bed in this tiny jail cell. And... Um, this is just, this is our history. And we have to figure out what we're going to do as Christians who look toward the future. We have to sort out our past. Amen? Do we want the same story of Christianity of the last 1,000 years to be told 1,000 years from now? Or will we have the courage to ask the questions and face the issues that could make a different future. And brothers and sisters, Christian theology has been done by white men for 2,000 years. The next... Uh, I thought Augustine of Hippo was a black man. Just pointing it out. Change cannot be done by white men. It has to be done by all of us working together. And we have to stop assuming somebody else will do it. The pastors can't say, oh, the theologians will do it because they're more free than we are. Not many of them. They're all worried about who's going to pay their, make their donations and all the rest. You know? I, I think all of us have to say, we have received something from our ancestors and from our parents and grandparents and from the missionaries and others. We received it. But what we pass on to the next generation will have our fingerprints on it. And they can be fingerprints and they can be additions and changes and repentance and humility that makes what we pass on be even more precious than what we receive. And it's not just people. It's what we've done to the planet and to species around the world that 
no longer exist because human beings only thought, they only read the verses from the Bible that talked about giving human beings to, be, to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. We never asked what dominion meant. And now our planet is in great danger. And I don't know how it is here, but I know in my country, the people who are least concerned about the environment are the committed church-going Christians. Uh, That's quite a generalization, Brian. The people least concerned about the planet are the church-going Christians? Uh, Let me rephrase that for you, Brian. Maybe it's church-going Christians who aren't buying into the lie of man-made global warming. Maybe because they've exercised some discernment and found that that's not the case. By the way, the world's been cooling for the past six years, and they're concerned that uh, the summer this year isn't going to be warm enough to help crops do well around the world. By the way, you want to know what causes global warming? It's called the sun. Yeah, that big ball of fire out there in space that's not too far from us, that's what causes global warming. Um, And uh, they've found a direct correlation to sunspots being the primary thing. When there's seasons of high sunspots on the earth, on the the sun, things warm up around here. When there's few sunspots, uh, it it doesn't, mm -hmm, yeah. Just wanted to point that out. Brothers and sisters. The future of the planet depends. 33% of the world's people are affiliated with the Christian faith. If 33% of us can discover a proper vision of people of other races and tribes, people of other religions and cultures, and a proper understanding of this beautiful planet that God has entrusted to us. Wait a second. You're saying a proper understanding? Isn't that a new box? Isn't that a state? I thought you were on a quest. Notice his postmodern gibberish doesn't even hold up at all in his own thinking. If we, if we can take that seriously, there could be a, a better future. But it begins with us taking stock and saying that the, recent, that the failures of the Christian faith in recent centuries do not suggest a minor design flaw. They suggest the need for a deep shift and a radical change. Oh, a design flaw in Christianity. So the problem is Christian theology, because Christian theology creates a thieving colonialism, imperialism? I don't think so, Brian. Don't think so at all. So this is dangerous. It's easy to talk about, let's have guitars and drums instead of pianos and organs. I mean, people freak out about that. But we've got to talk about some very deep things. And we've got to ask some of those very hard questions. And I'm ready to get in trouble for it because it has to happen. I'll just tell you one quick story before I jump into this. I, um, I've been very involved in dialogue with Muslims in the last several years. And I met a very important Muslim scholar, a woman, and we had a wonderful conversation She helped me understand Islam in some new ways, and it was very, very good. Well, after that conversation, she had never heard of me before, so she went online and Googled my name, you know, did a search on my name, and found all the people who think I'm of the devil and all the rest. (laughs) 
And she realized that one of the reasons why I have a lot of very strong critics is because I always speak about the need for Christians to love Muslims. I agree. We must love Muslims enough to tell them the truth that Allah is not a prophet. Uh, that I'm sorry, that Allah is not a true God and the Muhammad is not a prophet of God, that it's a false religion. They need to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And uh, that Muslims are our neighbors. We have to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so she wrote me an email. It's one of the nicest compliments I've ever received. She said, I, I read every place on the Internet where you have talked about Islam and Muslims. She said, I just wanted to thank you. You're saving Muslim lives. You are a true Christian. We need to go through this moment. Saving a Muslim life does not make you a true Christian because if you save a Muslim life and they stay a Muslim, they go to hell, Brian. We need to face these issues because the way of a man of peace, a man of reconciliation, a man of liberation, who was tortured and killed by powerful people, that became a powerful religion that, that defended oppression, torture, and violence in the very name of this man. And out of loyalty and fidelity to Jesus Christ, we must be willing to face the problems in the Christian religion. Amen? So, I'm going to read you a couple of quotes from a Roman Catholic African from Uganda. His name is Emmanuel Katangale. And uh, I hope someday Emmanuel will be able to be at, a, at an Amahoro gathering because we have to get Catholics and Protestants together talking about these things. And Emmanuel has become a good friend, and he's very excited about the work of Amahoro. Um, some of you might know about the story of King Leopold and what King Leopold did to Congo. It's a horrible story. And a book was written called King Leopold's Ghost. And Emmanuel said, there is indeed something like King Leopold's ghost hanging over a great part of Africa. Many in Africa today are wondering whether Christianity has any power to save them from this nightmare. Then he goes on and he talks about all of the talk about an African renaissance. Now, he, he's critical of this word African renaissance. So the story of African renaissance is one whose plot, as well as final resolution, is designed, determined, and declared from the 10th floor of some air-conditioned offices in New York, London, or Cape Town. More stories about uh, sort of joining the global economy, that being the salvation, he says, you know, it's not that simple. We need an alternative to the basic story embodied within the nation state in Africa. By the nation state, he means politics and economics in their standard formation. Even in South Africa, the moral and political legitimacy of, the, of an apartheid state was challenged, but not, it seems to me, the nation state project as nation state. Now, what he means by this is we're working on an assumption of Western Christianity that the nation state is the big reality and the church exists within the nation state. And uh, what Emmanuel believes and what I believe is that the kingdom of God is the big reality and the nation state is a dirty little neighborhood in the kingdom of God. And so to be a Christian means you have to be part of the... Let's forget the word Christian. To be part of the kingdom of God means that you have a connection and a loyalty and a citizenship in a higher realm. 
forget the word Christian. To be part of the kingdom of God means you're part, you have citizenship in a higher realm. doesn't matter if you're a Christian. You're part of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is bigger than Christianity. That goes above a political party and a tribal identity and a national identity and an economic preferred model. It lifts us to a higher level. And what Emmanuel is saying is we've got to rediscover. We need something that lifts us to that higher level. And... Uh, and then he says, this inability to question the nation state. And with the nation state, he also means, and all of our assumptions about how church and religion works in the world. It's perhaps not surprising given the dominant tradition which has shaped the Christian social ethics since the Enlightenment, assuming that the social and religious constitute two distinct fields, each with its own relative autonomy. Suppose it is the way it, um, in which the nation state defines, narrates, and frames the social sphere, which is the problem. What he's saying is, listen, Part of the problem is our Christian faith has been relegated, and we've brought it down to a little personal level. My soul in heaven after I die, if I'm a traditional Christian. Or God and how I can get rich if I'm a prosperity gospel Christian. But it ends up being about me and my issues and my desires and my fulfillment and my needs. So religion works in that private sphere. But in the big sphere, we let government take care of that. We let politics take care of that. We let economics take care of that. Our faith stays out of that sphere. And he sees this. Really? Uh, Brian, ever since I was a young lad, I've heard of nothing except for Christians getting involved in the political realm. Taking our faith and putting it into practice in politics. This has been a common theme for the last 30 years. This is as a major part of the problem. For now, reduced to the social space, the church, just like all the other tribalisms that make up this space, is regarded by the dominant story at once as a temporary nuisance to be tolerated and as potential capital to be somehow recruited in its ever-expanding clientele politics. And he's describing what's happened to our churches, politely tolerated or else used by political forces. But we're not players in changing the world. We're just dealing with individual people and their hearts and their nuclear families and all the rest. And he says some, the most determinate task and challenge of theology becomes one of social imagination, one of imagining new and better ways of conceiving those everyday struggles and aspirations which lie at the... That's a, a big thing of theology? Again, Christ says, go into all nations preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Anything there about transforming social whatevers? The basis of a people's social existence. He says, look, theology is not just about church. Theology is about life. Our faith is about life. Our faith is about how you're a Kikuyu or, or, or Luo. Your faith is about how you're a Tutsi or a Hutu. Your faith is about how you're a Democrat or Republican. Your faith affects everything about your life. Agreed. Your faith affects how you're a South African or a Zimbabwean or a Rwandan or, or an Australian. Your faith is formative to your whole identity and affects all of your life. The church's own story involves or rather is a politics. By politics, he means how we relate to each other 
how humans relate to each other. A call for Christians to be socially formed in a distinctive way. The church can or ought to embody a different or better narrative of social existence than the one embodied by the nation state. A narrative of social existence. Is this a biblical category? I just I just got a question for you. Is this what is he talking about? Where do I see this in the scripture? Oh, I remember. He doesn't want us to live in the past. He thinks this is what God's pulling us towards in the future. So this hasn't been written down and handed to us in our scriptures. This is something that he thinks God's pulling us towards. In Africa, but it's true around the world. And brothers and sisters, if we wait for other pastors to start doing this, the baton will go through our hands to the next generation. Doing what? We have to say, this is my responsibility in my church or in my class or in my ministry, wherever we have influence. What is actually at stake is not just the framing of new doctrines or formulations, but the... What's at stake is not just the framing of new doctrines and formulations? What? What? We're going to... with the. If we're going to frame new doctrines, that would mean we would need different scriptures, wouldn't it? Wow. Availability of an alternative set of practices. By practicing means the way we live. The ability to re-energize these everyday struggles within the hopeful purpose of the Christian story. The kingdom of God manifests itself wherever the new universe is under construction. Not a new world in the sense of... <laughs> The kingdom of God manifests itself wherever the new universe is under construction. Has construction begun on the new heavens and new earth, by the way? Um, can anyone point me to the orange cones where the new heavens and new earth are beginning, beginning to be created so that I can avoid that? I wouldn't want to get caught in the traffic snarl from that. Or does the death of heaven and earth occur at Christ's return and he will create all things new again. <clears throat> world beyond, but in a sense of a different world right here, a world being gestated in the deeds of every day. So it's happening here. A world that's being gestated in the deeds of every day. What is this? What is is this? This is not Christianity. When whites and blacks listen to one another, when they allow the words of the other to change their understanding of the world, when people of different tribes and people of different African nations, we start to say the whole world doesn't revolve around the dual axes of Cape Town and Johannesburg. You know, But Kampala has a place and Kigali has a place and and Harari has a place. And we start to, uh, we, a, a new world starts to be gestated, develops. The world becomes pregnant with a better future inside of us. Uh, yeah. Through the power of the gospel. The call. Oh, uh, the world. Be, through the power of the gospel. I had to throw that in there. 
to social imagination seeks to realize communities in which the daily tasks of plowing, harvesting, pasturing, in which the cultivation of vegetables and the digging of wells, the immunization against malaria and the construction of pit latrines is as much a matter of Christian salvation as the celebration of baptism, the Eucharist, and the reading of the scriptures. Uh, Brian, real quick here. Um, uh, that falls into the category of loving your neighbor and serving your neighbor in your vocation. It already is part of Christianity. However, it is not salvific in any way, shape, or form. It is the, it is the fruit of those who have been transformed from dead to alive, from non-believing to believing, uh, by the preaching of the gospel. Hmm. This is not a Christian religion. This is a way of life in the way of Jesus Christ. It says, I kept wondering what it would take for Christians to resist some of the values of the market. For I'm sure that there are Christian practices which make it impossible for Christians to be good consumers in a liberal capitalistic economy, such as the our in our father. You understand? He's saying whenever we say our father, we're realizing not just my father, but our Father. And, and when, when we have the solidarity of the Eucharist and we share a meal together, we're reminded that God's focus is not just on the family. God's focus is on the community and the world. And so if one takes these practices seriously, then one begins to harbor valid doubts about and to seek alternatives to the liberal economic story that tries to convince us that we exist as individuals driven by self-interest who regard the other as a competitor for the same limited resources. Now, when Claude used that beautiful word Ubuntu last night... Okay, listen up. Again, we've traveled a long way today. Again, listen to the themes. They're similar to what we're getting from the, from the Maitreyaites. Sharing. That's the opposite of the story that's told. And part of the battle going on in Africa and around the world now is a new form of colonization that isn't by nations, but it's by economic systems. And uh, I'll just, one quick story. When the troubles were going on in Kenya uh, in uh, January of 2008, I was listening to the radio in my city, and the radio host was interviewing a Kenyan who lives in Washington. And this Kenyan fellow did a great job describing the conflicts and the history of the conflicts and what was going on. And then the, the, the radio host said, uh, could you tell us what tribe you're from? And there was a couple moments of silence. And then he said, I could tell you, but I'd rather not. And then I expected him to say, because my relatives could be hurt because of things I'm saying. But that's not what he said. He said, I'd rather not, and here's why. He said, the truth is, in all of the world, there are only two tribes, the haves and the have-nots. And if you take our conflict and put it in terms of tribes, you miss the fact that the same conflict is going on in the United States and South Africa, and every other country. And then he finished by saying this. I am one of the haves. Now the Kenyans all know which tribe he's from. I'm one of the haves. My tribe has had all the advantages. He said, but I've devoted my life to serving the have-nots and to use my advantages for their advantage. 
And I, he didn't say, I'm a follower of Jesus in so many words, but he was saying he was a follower of Jesus. Because that's what Jesus did. Let your attitude be that of Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God something to hold on to, but he poured himself out, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, being made in the image of a man. He humbled himself, became the, took the form of a servant, and went farther still and became obedient to death, and not just death, but death in the most shameful way, death on a cross. He went to the lowest place. And brothers and sisters, this is part of our challenge. Um, Jesus' death on the cross was not about the haves and the haves have-nots. It was penal substitution, Christ being punished in our place on the cross for our sins, getting what we deserved. And then uh, Emmanuel concludes by saying, for Christian theology, as I take it, has one of its great challenges, the reappreciation of the small, the local, the particular, which is always being covered up by grand narratives and totalizing structures. Can theology challenge whoever is telling that story, the World Bank, the IMF, the African leaders, to come down to the ground into the messy, uneven trivialities of everyday contradictions of African villages, the shanty towns, the squatter camps, the black streets, the home of the starving street children? The call to social imagination seeks to realize communities in which those daily tasks are given great value again as part of our Christian ministry. And that, brothers and sisters, is the task that we're in together. Is there a period of time that I'm not aware of that Christians stopped reaching out to the poor in in other nations? I, I I'm just not aware of this time in history. Why is he speaking as if Christians have not for millennia been reaching out to the poor? How could we not? It's my task as an American who lives in the suburbs. And I have every advantage. I had a great education. I had great family. I had everything going for me. But I am bound for the rest of my life to everyone I've met in my travels. And now I think we're on a quest together. To preach the gospel to announce the good news of the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, to call men to repentance and faith in Jesus. Is that what you're talking about? Is that who you, the debt that you're going to pay? And I, I can't remember if Claude said this last night. I know I've heard him say it other times. You see, when you take the haves and the have-nots, they're both being dehumanized by this situation. It's dehumanizing to be a greedy, selfish, apathetic pig. And it's dehumanizing to be treated like a dog. And the gospel invites us both to get out of that story and go on the quest to be human beings together, made in the image of God, Christ-like people. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to tell you some questions that I am hearing around the world that I believe are at the core of this quest. I'm not going to answer them, Because the important thing isn't just jumping to the answer. The important thing is being part of the quest. 
answers end conversation. But what if the conversation is the answer? Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, brother. What if we have to find the answer together by going on a quest? And so I, I'm, I, I, if you're taking notes, you can get these. I, I'm actually... Uh, which of the apostles went on the uh, went on quests and didn't pronounce the answer as Jesus Christ? Writing a book about this that will come out next year. This, but I, I have 10 questions. I'm just going to name them quickly. It's not important that you get these down, but just that they stimulate you to say there's important questions to ask. I am going to talk a bit about the first question before we conclude. But the first is the narrative question. What is the shape or the storyline of the biblical narrative? This, to me, is the, the question I think is the most profound, provocative, and scary for people. So we'll spend a few minutes on this in just a minute. Second is the authority question. What's the Bible for? How is it supposed to be used? What went wrong when white people used it to justify slavery or segregation or apartheid? What went wrong? Their pastors didn't tell them their sins. How can we be sure not to use the Bible? How can, what went wrong when we used the Bible to destroy, almost destroy the planet? How, do we, how are we so stupid? Is there something wrong with the Bible or is there something wrong with the way we read it? And if you believe the latter, then we better really scrutinize the way we read it. Uh, uh, the violent God question. This is the question I'm asked the most around the world when I have Q&A sessions is God violent and hateful? How do we deal with the violent passages of the Bible? Does God have favorites? He doesn't want some people to experience injustice, but he'll command injustice for other people. We've got to deal with that question. <sighs> and uh, it's a very, very important one. Fourth, the Jesus question. Just to say Jesus is almost meaningless because you have to say, which Jesus are you talking about? And you can say Jesus, 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 and make slaves. You can say Jesus, 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 and kill people of another tribe. Uh, which Jesus are we talking about? The gospel question, what is the gospel? Is it just information on how to go to heaven after we die? Or is it the announcement of God's will being done on earth as, as it is in heaven? Those are very different understandings of the gospel. The church question, does the church have a future? And does the future have a church? And what kind of church do we have to imagine? Because an awful lot of people are giving up on church or they're critiquing all the structures and methods, but they're never dealing with these deeper message questions. And when we deal with the message questions, what will that mean for the, the church and the church's future? Um, seventh is the sex question. Why is sexuality such a divisive issue among Christians? Now, part of it's homosexuality. And I know that a lot of people don't believe this, but I, I, I'm quite certain this is true. About 6% of people in every culture are gay. And in some culture, it's not admitted. And 100% of everybody is a sinner. 6% is a lot. And in Africa, this is going to have to be dealt with. I'll just tell, I can't even name this country, okay? But I'm going to tell you, I was speaking at a university in the United States. And the chaplain of the university said, there's a young man who really wants to talk to you. And I, I, I reserved a half hour of your time to talk to him. Would you talk to him? I said, sure. I said, what's it about? He said, he needs to tell you. So a young African man, top, one of the top students in his country, the son of committed Christians. And he came to the United States and had the courage to tell people that he was gay. Now, because he's come out as being gay, he's the first person in his country 
ever to come out as being gay. And there are death threats waiting for him. He can never go back to his country. And you didn't tell him to repent of his sin? And his parents want nothing to do with him. And so this man needed to talk to somebody and needed to find a Christian who would not condemn him. It's a big issue. But it's not just homosexuality, even though that gets all the attention. Oh, man. Because the fact is, sexuality ain't going too well for heterosexuals either. And, and we've got to deal with it. And that's the standard. I thought the standard was scripture. And Africa has such an interesting history in this regard. Uh, that's another whole story. Um, the future question. What kind of future do we expect? How should we, that vision of the future affect our lives? The way we've answered the previous questions may, has limited our options for thinking about the future. And so many people believe that God has determined the future and that it's all going downhill, so why even bother caring? And that is an extremely convenient theology to have if you want to be apathetic and selfish. Um, ninth is, is the pluralism question. How do followers of Jesus relate to people of other religions? You call them to repentance and faith in, in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. By this, I mean people who do not want to convert. Now, I'm all for evangelizing, but what about the person who doesn't want to convert? What, is our, what have our options been in the past? Persecute? Ignore? Shake the dust from your feet and move on. Shame? Kill? We need a better option. And that's a very big question. And the tenth question, how, in light of these questions, how can we open up this conversation to others in fruitful ways? And there are many other uh, questions. Okay, all right, all right. Now, I play all of this. Again, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is very different than previous installments. This was a little bit more of a think piece. Well, we went on an emergent quest, if you would, you know, asking a lot of questions. Noticing similarities between what the emergents are saying and what these Maitreyaites are talking about. <sighs> Scary stuff. They're completely redefining Christianity, and it's very frightening. What's the solution? Boldly proclaim <gasps> repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. That's what we do. And let the Holy Spirit do his thing. All right, sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. This is your program. That's right. If you're benefiting from it, we need you to financially support us so that we can continue bringing this program to you. You can support us by visiting FightingForTheFaith.com and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code Four six zero three eight. Well, I'd love your feedback on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith and what you've heard. Uh, email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook or receive my subversive microblogging tweets on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you through Jesus Christ and his mercy and grace won for you on the cross. See you next week.